So today's teaching, um, I've titled it, It's Not About You. Now, just to be clear, it's not about me either. In fact, it's not about any of us in this room. And as we'll see in our text today, to the extent it is less about us, the better off we'll be. So I want to explore with you today Paul's letter to the Philippians, specifically in chapter 2. So let's jump right into the text. I wanted to have something clever and funny to say, but I don't, so. Uh, Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To me, this passage is one of the high points of all of Scripture. Um, Philippians is my favorite book of the Bible, and so it's one of the, uh, the key passages in that book. So naturally, it's one of my favorite passages of all time. But the reason that I love this passage is not only the content of it is so focused on the gospel, but the context also focused on the gospel. So we see Paul writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And, and when he addresses it in, in chapter 1, he says... Um, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. He includes everybody in the church. It's not just to the leadership. It's not just to the congregants. It's not just to married folks. It's not just to single folks. It's not to old folks or young folks. It's just to the saints. And so when we look at this passage today, it's really speaking to all of us. It's not just speaking to a certain group, and I love that, how inclusive it is. The other thing I love about the context is Paul's heart behind the letter. Um, This is one of the few letters where Paul is continually exhorting the church. A lot of the letters we see like in Corinthians, he's rebuking them because they're kind of screwing up. But the Philippians, they're kind of in in a weird transition mode where Paul's established the church and they've been walking together for a period of time. And since they've been walking together, there's kind of that friction that's starting to develop. You know, when you're walking with someone, and maybe you're not walking at the same speed, and there, there creeps in this, this little spirit of dissension or disunity. And so Paul wants to address it because he loves the church before it becomes a major issue. And, and he addresses him as brothers. Um, and then in um, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved... These people are people that Paul cares very deeply about. 
And so these folks would have received it as from a dear friend who they, whom they knew loved them deeply. And so my hope today is that you hear this word, you would know that it comes from a place of love. Um, that I care deeply about this church and the people who are here. So let's start off in verse 1. Let's take, take a look back there. He starts off the verse with four rhetorical questions, which is a little bit confusing in our English translation because he asks if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. But in the original language, it really should be translated since. It's assumed that this is true. Paul is assuming that the church at Philippians has received that grace. They've accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they've received that, salva- that saving grace, that salvation that's freely given to them. And he's assuming that they're understanding that these things are true. And he's drawing from his own experiences with them. He's saying, since there's any, if there's any comfort and love, since there is, um, since there's participation with the Spirit, a unifying spirit that's present in the church. Since there is affection and sympathy among you, I've experienced, I lived among you. I was in prison in, in Philippi and you came and visited me. Paul is drawing on his personal experiences with that church. And he's saying, because all that is true, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now when we look at this, this phrase, any comfort from love, what Paul is saying is not just like, I love my wife. I do, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about there's love in the community, in the church. There's participation in that love through the service that these brothers and sisters were giving to one another. That participation is that word koinonia of the Spirit. It's that fellowship, that ability for people from diverse interests age ranges, ethnic backgrounds, to be united amongst one another. Which is awesome because when we see in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian church is started by a really witch, a witch, she was she might have been a witch before she was saved, I don't know, a really rich woman, uh, a slave girl, and then the jailer, right? So you couldn't have gotten more diversity to start the church as far as interests and phases of life. But there they are doing life together. And so he says in verse 2, be united with one another. Make me a proud father in the faith. Get along with your brothers and sisters. Now, um, my kids, they're only two years old and six months, but nothing makes me happier than when I see my daughter go over to my son and bring him his little toys and ask him how he's doing. Hey, Ev, hey, Ev, boy, how are you doing? It's just, it makes my heart feel so good. And I know those of you who have older kids, I'm sure that when you see your high school age kids taking care of their middle school aged siblings, even though they're annoying, it's got to make your heart feel good, right? That, man, you guys are getting it. You're getting it. And so what Paul is saying is, make me proud. Make me a happy dad in the faith. Uh, be like-minded, love one another. And so this plea of, of Paul to the church echoes back to what Christ asked his father for the church. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 17. And I want us to take a look at verse 20. 
He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the people that had been following Jesus, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Paul is echoing what Christ prayed. He's praying for unity, that the people in the church at Philippi would be united. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul had a gospel-centered mindset. He knew the heart of Christ is unity, unity with the Father. So that's where he pushes the church. But then the question then becomes, okay, we want unity. We agree that that's biblical, that's, that's Christ-like to be united with our brothers and sisters, but how? So that brings us to verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That, that phrase there, conceit, another way of translating it is empty glory. If our motivations are selfish, the glory that we get from those actions will be empty. That's contrasted with the attitude that we are to take on, which is that of Christ. When we act in unison with the body, the glory goes to Christ. And that glory is then reflected back on the church and out to the world as a witness to the unifying power of the gospel. Now in the context of the ancient Near East, humility was not something to be aspired to. In fact, whenever we see it mentioned in uh, Greek literature, it's, it's just a negative thing. It's like, oh, this guy's humble. What a, what a not cool guy he is. Right? People built monuments to themselves. They enslaved the people they captured and then forced those slaves to build monuments to them. It's the exact opposite of humility. And so it was viewed with contempt. But Paul is saying we have to be countercultural to reflect God's glory. And you see, in America, we don't value humility either. Uh, We say we do, but when we try to be humble, it ends up being really kind of more of like a humble brag. You guys know what I'm talking about? Here are some actual things that people said. It's weird. I feel too young to be on a corporate jet. Oh well, I guess I'm still going to fly. Every time I go to the gym, people ask me what position I play. Stop. I don't play football. It's funny how many people say I look like Daniel Craig. I don't see it. That's James Bond. I just gave $100 to the homeless guy I see on the corner all the time. Irrational kindness does feel really good. And so it goes. Let me just clear this up. That is not humility. It's not humility at all. Humility is not rappers singing about how they used to eat waffle sandwiches and now they're blessed because they drive nice cars. That's not humility. Humility is not posting about your trip to Paris on Instagram and then hashtagging it humble. That's not humility. 
That is, in fact, pride masquerading as humility. Very, very poorly masquerading, in fact. It's not even, it's very thinly veiled. Very, very thinly veiled. On the other hand, humility is also not being a doormat. We don't just let people walk all over us in the name of being humility, but we have that attitude of Christ of if someone hits us, we turn our other cheek. We don't retaliate. If someone asks us to carry their cloak for a mile, we say, let us carry it 10 miles. You see, biblical humility is pursuing the gospel in ways that I am gifted and encouraging my brothers and sisters to pursue the gospel in ways that they are gifted. Humility is pursuing the gospel in ways that I am gifted and encouraging my brothers and sisters to pursue the gospel in ways that they are gifted. And when I do that, I don't have to feel jealousy or bitterness that those giftings are not the same. Because we know that the body is made up of many members. When we count others as more significant than ourselves, we are free to accept that our role in the body is not in competition with our neighbor's role in the body. And we don't have to compare personalities and styles and abilities when we recognize that each one of us is significant. I'm not saying I have to put myself down. I'm saying I need to have a proper view of everyone else, which are brothers and sisters who have been equal recipients of God's saving grace. God didn't just die for you. He died for everyone. And so when we realize that God loved everyone enough to offer his salvation to them, it allows us to view other people as significant. Wow, you are special. You are worthy of my service. You are worthy of my love because you are worthy of Jesus' love. And so humility will then produce unity when we start working to grow our obedience in our giftings to Christ under the submission and direction of the authorities that he's placed in our lives. We realize that the foot is not competing to be an eye. The ear is not competing to be a nose. Each part is needed to make the body function in unison. And we recognize that when we accept that we're sinners, Christ has redeemed us and adopted us in as children. He has said, I'm worthy. He's done the same for each of you. And that empowers us to recognize that my spouse is also worthy. And I don't have to be bitter or jealous. The people in my community group are worthy. And I don't have to be bitter or jealous about their role in the church. Our pastors, our elders, they're worthy. And we don't have to be bitter or jealous towards them either. And we recognize this humility and this desire then to serve one another is not a facade. It's not pride masquerading as humility. We realize that it's driven by that same mind that's Christ. That prayer that Christ had for all, us all to be unified. I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it in his book, Life Together. He says, Self-justification and judging others go together, just as 
Justification by grace and serving others go together. So when we realize that we're justified by grace, not by our own works, it allows us to serve unconditionally and not need to compare our giftings with one another. Verse 5. He goes on. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now this phrase is not talking about yourselves as in you individually. This phrase is in fact talking about in the context of our community relationships. As we relate to one another, have this mind that is ours in Christ. In his commentary on Philippians, Walter Hansen translated the Greek this way. He said, In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind that is in Christ, that Christ had with the Father. Another way that he explored it was this way. Think this way in your community, which you also think in your union with Christ. You see, when we committed our lives to Christ, we became new creations. We put off our old self and we put on Christ. And by putting on Christ, we also must put on a new way of relating to one another. A way that is centered on the gospel. Not on our selfish ambition. And we recognize then we can serve others to the glory of God the Father. Which again echoes back to what Christ prayed in John 17. When he prayed that the glory God had given to him would be displayed in his people. So in other words, in the context of our community, act as if it's Jesus himself that's asking you to come early to set up and stay late to tear down. Ask as if it's Jesus himself who's asking you to step into the preschool classroom. Ask as if it's Jesus himself that asks you to have someone from your community group over for dinner after the end of a really long work day. Yes, introverted people, I'm looking at you. Act as if it is Jesus himself who asks you to put others' needs, interests, desires in front of your own. I'm going to read 6 through 11 here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This little section here sounds a little bit different than the first paragraph because it is. It's actually, in the, in the Greek language, it's a hymn. And a lot of commentators have speculated that it's perhaps the oldest hymn known to the Christian church. One working hypothesis is that uh, the apostle Stephen before he was um, killed by being stoned by the Jews, uh, was evangelizing to the um, Near Easterners. And he composed this hymn as a way of glorifying God and teaching people about who God is, laying before them an example to follow. And you see, in this section about Jesus, we have 
the perfect example of humility. You see, Jesus never asks us to do something that he didn't already himself do. That's the thing that I love about following Christ. He leads by example. He asks us to lay down his life only because he already has laid down his own. He asks us to serve one another only because he's given us the ultimate service. You see, he doesn't ask us to do things that are not reasonable because he was found as a human and was able to do it. He emptied himself out. He gave up all the rights of being God so that he could prove to the church, to his people, that serving one another in love was possible. And you see from the text that Jesus starts at God and goes down further. He's found in humanity. He's born as a little baby. He becomes obedient to the Father to die. Death on a cross. It's a progression from glory to humility. And then we see in the second half of that hymn, it's reversed. He humbles himself in humility, and then the Lord bestows on him the greatest name, a name at which everyone will bow to. All of creation will cry out, Jesus, you are Lord. And we see this pattern being echoed in the church. The Lord calls us to humble ourselves, to serve one another, to be obedient in love, to lay down our lives to follow Christ. And in return, he promises us that we will be grown into a temple for his spirit to dwell. That he will knit us together into a body that will reflect his glory to the world. And eventually, we get to be his bride. The ultimate glory. You see, if we continue to humble ourselves, God's Spirit will build us up into a place for the Lord to dwell, which is the ultimate glory. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says this. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see, Jesus' death, as people have put on Christ, we put on Jesus' death. Death to the flesh. And it allows us then 
to be filled with God's Spirit, to reflect His glory to the world around us. And I feel like in my life personally, it's hard to remember that I'm wearing Jesus. That as someone who's committed my life to falling after Jesus, I don't have to walk in the flesh anymore. I don't have to succumb to jealousy and bitterness. I can put on that mind that's mine in Christ, that mind of humility. Now, as many of you know, uh, vocationally, I teach high school science at the Chamao Indian School, which is here in town. And at the beginning of the school year, we found ourselves in a dire situation. You see, the girls' volleyball coach had just had a major shoulder surgery, and she wasn't even at school. So the choice was find someone to coach volleyball or cancel the season. So the athletic director came into my office one afternoon and he asked me if there was any way I would consider taking the job. Now, mind you, I have zero experience coaching volleyball. (laughs) So after some prayer and deliberation with my wife, And some of our friends here at church, I decided, yeah, this was a great opportunity for me. Now, I'm pretty comfortable coaching basketball, because I've coached that for the last six seasons, but that's boys' basketball. It's boys and it's basketball. It's not girls' volleyball. I had absolutely no idea what I would be getting myself into. No clue how I would manage... 30 teenage girls who not only play sports together but live together 24-7 and all of the emotions and soap operaness that come along with that. Now normally at a normal school a coach would have one team right you'd have a varsity coach and you'd have a JV coach and you'd have a freshman coach not so not so because we don't like to do anything normally at Chamel. I ended up coaching all three teams. Sitting on the bench through three matches every night. And I'm extremely humbled to announce that after one season of volleyball, I have a career record of one win, 40 losses, and one tie. Thank you. There's nothing like forced humility. (laughs) Every night it was a challenge to remind myself to put on Christ. To remind myself that what I was doing was not about me, but an opportunity for me to reflect the love and encouragement the sympathy and the affection that I have because I'm part of this community to reflect that on a group of girls who are incredibly broken. And it was because the empowerment that I felt as, as a brother in this community, the encouragement, the text messages at 11 and I, hey, how'd your volleyball game go? I'm praying for you. The ability of the young adults group to 
lift me up in prayer for endurance. The conversations I get to have with each and every one of you on Sunday morning about how things are at school, how things at school are going. It's those things that has empowered me to reflect the spirit of unity that's here in this place to the outside world. It's because you all are helping me renew my mind to be more like Jesus. That when this opportunity to serve came up, I was ready to answer the call. It wasn't the good in me. It was the power of the Spirit producing fruit in my life as a result of unity with you all. And as a result of the Holy Spirit cultivating in me a spirit of obedience through His Word. And I've been empowered so much by you guys, I can't thank you enough for the ability to use my giftings both inside the church and outside the church. So this begs the question then, we see that Christ is the perfect example, but how do we as a church body keep the mind of Christ in us? How do we allow our minds to be formed more and more like Christ each and every day? So I want to submit two points of application for us to consider today. Number one, number one is this, commit to pouring over God's word daily. Commit to pouring over God's word daily. And the reason is this. How can we possibly know what the attitude of Christ is if we are not consistently letting him speak to us through his word. Now, as a church, we have daily reading calendars available for you at the back table if you're someone that needs more structure and motivation to check off those little boxes. But another really simple strategy that I found myself employing recently is to take notes on Sunday. Easy way to help us get into the scripture. Because during the week... We take a look back at our notes, and you know that Hans pretty much gives us a dissertation every Sunday. So there's a number of scriptures, ample scripture to pour over from us Sunday notes to get you through letting the Spirit speak to you through the Word each and every day. Now, this is not something that we do as legalism. I want to be very clear about that. It's not something that we should feel obligated to do. No one's going to come up to you on a Sunday morning and say, hey, um, can I see your Bible reading log for this week? I want to make sure that you've been getting into the Word. No, we're not going to do that. However, setting aside daily time to dig into the Word is going to be a reflection of how highly you are prioritizing your relationship with Christ. Setting aside that time each and every day is going to be a reflection of what's going on in your heart. And that's between you and Jesus. That's not between you and anyone else. But as a brother in Christ, I want to encourage you, let that water wash over you. Be in the Word daily. You see, our goal is to have lives just like Paul centers his message to the Philippians on the gospel. We want to have lives that are centered on the gospel. We want to live centered on the gospel. And so, we need to be studying the gospel message in the Word. 
how can we know the love of Jesus if we are not pouring over the gospel message in the word? Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So I want to encourage you to let this word be your guide as you consider how to keep that mind of Christ at the forefront. Second point of application is this. Commit to being known and serving at a local church. Commit to being known and serving at a local church. Now, if you're visiting, it's probably not going to be here at Mission. But if you call this church home, if you're here on Sundays, commit to getting to know people in this church, to being known on a deep level. Commit to laying down your life for the brothers and sisters of this church in service. You see, we are called to live sacrificially just as Christ lived sacrificially. And outside of the sacrifices that we make for our immediate family members, the number one area that we're called to live sacrificially is inside the church. And the way that we're structured here at Mission, that should be in in the context of your local community group. We should be living sacrificially with the members of our community group. Now, I know that we've spent the last three weeks or so in our community groups going over what it means to be a covenant member here at Mission. And I'm excited to walk alongside of you in this process as we continue forward in that. But I want to encourage all of us to continue to love and serve one another. I know it's not easy changing the momentum of the Titanic. It's not easy doing things differently than we've always done them. But I think it's healthy and I think it's good. But all of, all of the success, all of the gains, all of the feel-goods that we could give ourselves could be completely undermined if we don't continue to lay down our lives each and every day for our brothers and sisters. And so being a part of a covenant community gives us this framework for living sacrificially. This is where God's Spirit dwells. And in order for us to walk in the Spirit and continue to be renewed by the Spirit, I would submit to you we need to be part of a local church. And here's why. Let's take a look at Philippians 2.12. Paul continues on. So he gives the Philippians an exhortation to live humbly and serve one another. He lays forth the example of Christ as the perfect example of how to do that. And then he says, therefore, because Christ has already done all this for us, since we've been saved already, since salvation is ours, therefore, as you have always obeyed, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I think that in my own mind, I have very wrongly interpreted this this little section of, of Scripture. I always thought working out my own faith with fear and trembling was making sure that I have the exact right theology, that I am healthily respectful of the power of God and that I have correct beliefs about him. 
But in the context of Philippians, we see that Paul's actually talking about you guys, the church at Philippi, make sure that how you're acting towards one another, how you're treating one another, how you're reflecting my glory to the world, the glory of Christ to the world, make sure that that is gospel-centered. He's not talking about individually, although it plays out individually. He's talking about corporately, work out your faith. Be a place where the Spirit dwells in unity, in loving, sacrificial service. You see, we are called to obedient, in obedience to continue to work out our faith, knowing that the glory of God on display in the church leads us to healthy fear and trembling. Notice that as a church, we are called to continue living. It's not a one-time thing, but it's a, it's a continual thing. It's God working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, to give him glory by sacrificially loving our brothers and sisters. When we consider covenanting with one another, we really have to ask ourselves this question. You see, we see Jesus asking his disciples to count the cost of following him. But my question is, do we also consider the cost of entering into relationships with his people? Do we also consider the cost of entering into relationships with his people? Because the choice to be in covenant with God's people is not simply about you. That's why I said at the beginning, it's not about you. Choosing to be in relationship at a committed, intimate level is really not for you. In the context of church community, it's not for you. It's for your brothers and sisters. Because you are gifted in ways that your brothers and sisters are not. And if you are not committed to sharing those gifts with your brothers and sisters, they're the ones that are paying the price. They're the ones who don't get to experience the fullness of God's glory because you're being selfish with your giftings. The question should not be, is this good for me in my spiritual health? The question should be, Will this bring sanctification for my brother and sister and will it give God glory? The question should be, is it going to be, bring God glory? Is entering into a relationship with his people going to bring him glory? Is it going to bring my brothers and sisters closer to Jesus for me to share my gifts with them? The answer is yes. I'm going to answer. That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, it's going to. Now I'm going to say something controversial. So listen carefully. That way, when Hans gets back, you can tell him exactly what I said. Don't misquote me here. More love is not the answer to being more like Jesus. More love is not the answer to being more like Jesus. You see, to love or not love someone or something is a choice that we make that is born out of our desires and our allegiances. But what I want to submit to you is that the way we become more like Jesus, not by white-knuckling it and just choosing to love more, it's by doing what Paul said, having the same attitude of mind that is ours in Christ. Romans 12. Go ahead and turn there. 
12.1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Therefore, meaning Paul's laid out the message of the gospel. Because we've been saved, because everyone is given equal rights to salvation, because God has died for us all, and we've accepted it. Therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, we say to God, I'm yours. I'm committed to following you. I've counted the cost of discipleship. I'm committed to being like you. While I'm living here in the flesh, I'm giving myself over to your service as a living sacrifice. And we invite the Holy Spirit to renew our minds through our meditation on God's Word and through fellowship with His church. And out of that renewal of mind and the choice to serve as a living sacrifice comes the consequence. Let's take a look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You see, the consequence of letting the Holy Spirit renew our minds and attitudes is that we are empowered to use our gifts in the context of community. We're empowered to realize that I have a gift that's important to contribute to the body. My brother has a gift that's important to the body. My sister has a gift that's important to the body, and we're all working together, and we are members of one another. We belong to one another. What a beautiful picture that is. And it's not for you, right? It's not for you. It's for Jesus. It says in verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. You see, we can't get to that genuine love for our brother if we have not first committed our lives to living sacrificially and we have not committed to letting the Spirit renew how we think and feel about our brothers and sisters. Again, we're shifting from self-justification, comparing myself to what everyone else is doing, to justification by grace alone. It is Jesus who has saved each and every one of us. Therefore, I can serve you sacrificially because Jesus counted you worthy. And so as a result of the Spirit's work in us, we can love genuinely as Christ genuinely loved the church and gave his life for her. Let's look at Ephesians 4. 
Go ahead and turn there. I don't want to get too far in depth on this since we're going to go through Ephesians next. But by the time we get to chapter 4 next October, you might have forgotten so. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify to in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So we see the world, it starts with they're darkened in their understanding. Their minds are futile. They're not being regenerated in their mind. And that leads to their hearts being hardened towards the gospel. So we see there that same idea. It starts with letting the Spirit work in our minds, and then it plays out as love towards one another. And then it says in verse 20, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, Paul was not concerned with the outward actions of the early church as much as he was with the root because he knew that the root of those actions was deep, deeply rooted in the minds and in the spirits of the church. And the only way to change that is to allow the Spirit to work in our lives, to give the Spirit authority in our lives to regenerate us, to be made new creations. And then it says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So therefore, because we've put on the new self through God's redemptive grace that we could not possibly earn or come close to uh, to paying for, his free gift paid for by his blood alone, Because we have that new self and are being renewed in our minds, therefore we love. So you see, love is not the key. The renewed renewed mind is the key. A spirit and an attitude that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit empowers Christ's followers to reflect his glory to the world around us through our love. So my prayer for all of us as we continue to pursue Christ together, may we be a community of believers committed to serving one another with genuine humility and love. And I want to leave you guys with this this quote again. It's from Bonhoeffer's Life Together. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another, holy and for all eternity. May we be a community that loves one another sacrificially, that is willing to lay down our lives 
for one another in humble service as a result of the grace that Christ has shown to each one of us.